From the grassroots media team at Weave News, this is Interweaving. Welcome to episode 11 of Interweaving. I'm John Collins. We're back with more COVID-19 Diaries, our series focusing on how people in diverse locations are experiencing and interpreting the global pandemic caused by the spread of the new coronavirus. As we sit down to put this episode together, the Coronavirus Resource Center at Johns Hopkins University reports that there are now more than 415,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus infection around the world. More than 18,000 people have died and more than 107,000 have recovered. Here at Weave News, we continue to receive audio reports in response to our call issued on March 16th. You'll find that call at our website, weavenews.org. We encourage you to share the call with friends far and near and to consider adding your own voice to this project. Today, we spotlight five voices coming to us from Hong Kong, Bolivia, Australia, Thailand, and the Netherlands, each offering us a snapshot of a local moment in the development of this global story. My name is Bidisha Banerjee. Today is Sunday, the 22nd of March, and I'm reporting from Hong Kong. We're in a very different place from where we were a week ago, and today Hong Kong is a bit on edge. This city of 7.5 million is being held up as a good example in the battle against the coronavirus. With a handful of much smaller Asian cities like Singapore and Macau, Hong Kong has managed to flatten the curve very quickly. In fact, we never saw the kinds of numbers we're now seeing in the Western world, though the first case was reported almost two months ago. Last weekend, Hong Kong had under 150 cases and only four deaths. Schools and universities did not reopen after the Chinese New Year break in late January, and we transitioned to online classes soon after. Professors and teachers across the city quickly became experts in video meeting software, such as Zoom. We went through our phase of buying a million rolls of toilet paper, hoarding hand sanitizers and bleach, and staring in despair and rising anxiety at empty shelves in grocery stores. Offices were either closed or running on skeletal staff that worked in rotating shifts. Hong Kong's ubiquitous malls now lay empty, and many restaurants and small businesses worried about staying afloat. We even lost both of our Jamie Oliver outlets. People with second homes in other countries left for what they thought were safer shores. But the anticipated sharp rise in COVID-19 cases never came, and the city's denizens gradually, but ever so cautiously, started to ease up. Hong Kong's hiking trails and outdoor spaces began to see large crowds again. The gorgeous spring weather made staying indoors really hard, especially in the face of a virus that we seem to have miraculously brought under control. Even restaurants started seeing queues again, and there was a cautious optimism in the air, accompanied by a quiet pride at how well our city had done. All that quickly changed over the past week, and Hong Kong is now in the midst of a second wave. Recording new highs every day, with a sharp rise predicted in the next couple of weeks, mainly caused by imported cases. 
We've already doubled our number of total cases from only a week ago, and the government has imposed strict quarantine measures on those coming from anywhere in the world except China, Macau, and Taiwan. These measures were announced last Monday and came into effect at midnight on Thursday, compelling Hong Kongers to fly back home, particularly students in boarding schools and universities across the U.S. and U.K. Others had taken advantage of school suspensions and work-from-home measures to enjoy an impromptu holiday abroad. They too returned, fleeing places that were now far worse hit than Hong Kong. Also, people had begun to frequent restaurants and bars again. Some cases reported late last week were connected with establishments in Lang Kwaifong and Soho, the city's entertainment quarters. All of this has resulted in the recent spike in cases, we're told. This city has shown exemplary community spirit throughout this ordeal. The vast majority of Hong Kongers have been wearing masks when they are out. People have generally stayed home and only taken fairly calculated risks about venturing outside. The traumatic memories of SARS, which took 300 lives 17 years ago, are still fresh for many people. Those lessons were well learned. This time, no one waited for government decrees. In fact, most Hong Kongers were frustrated with the already unpopular government for not doing enough to stem the corona tide. There were urgent calls in the early days to close the border with China, and the government only partially relented. People moved quickly to adopt social distancing measures. They knew what to do with no instructions from the government. Even now, Hong Kong has managed to stay well ahead of the curve and has provided many lessons for the world. It has shown that social distancing is imperative in the fight against the coronavirus. It has highlighted the efficacy of wearing a mask, something that Hong Kongers see as a way not only to protect themselves, but also to protect others. It is widely perceived as a social obligation, a civic duty. This willingness is also emblematic of the city's massive community response in fighting this virus. Unfortunately, though, Hong Kong has also shown that if we let down our guard, a second wave can arrive in short order. Global travel, so much a part of today's globalized world, presents its own unique challenges. I remain confident that Hong Kong's community spirit will again prevail and see us through this crisis. Signing off from Hong Kong in solidarity with people around the world in this unprecedented time, with the words seen on government posters all around this beautiful city, together we fight the virus. Hello, my name is Nicole Sooks. Today is March 22 and I'm reporting from La Paz, Bolivia. Uh, so we started the lockdown today. However, last week we were on a partial lockdown, meaning we had to go to work from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. and stay in our homes till, uh, from 5 p.m. till 6 a.m. Uh, Bolivia so far has 24 cases, but we uh, are worried that there are more because our health system is very weak and we don't have a health system that can support more sick people. Also, we're very worried because almost 80% of Bolivians live on informality, meaning they have to work every day for their daily living. So the lockdown will affect those who are most vulnerable. 
Last year in Bolivia, as you may know, we had a very big political crisis, which stopped the whole country for 21 days. So people and business were just starting to recover right now, both economically and financially. Because we're still on a political crisis, many people won't obey the lockdown, claiming it's just a tactic by the new right-wing government. Personally, I am very aware of my privileges, the fact that I can work remotely from home and that I have steady income, it's a big privilege. I have a roof over my head, I have strong community, I have food. So right now with a group of people, we're thinking of how can we use these privileges to help people with small businesses, people who live on informality, which are not in the same position and which would suffer economically, physically and psychologically and are most vulnerable to get sick. Personally, what the virus is bringing me is the need to heal. I think we need to heal as a community, we need to heal personally, and then we need to heal as society. This quiet time hopefully will help us to start this healing process. I feel this is one of the only ways we can help to heal the system. However, we need to go beyond that. After this lockdown is done, we need to fight, we need to work more together for a social justice and ecological justice as well. I think the world is crying and asking for help. And I think nothing can be the same anymore and won't be the same anymore. So this globalization has brought the virus to all of us. And I hope it can also bring us the ability to work in solidarity, to help each other, to go slower, to listen to each other, to help the most vulnerable, and to realize that what we need is health system that can take care of us all and not just the ones that have money, and that we need social security that can help us to be more food secure. You're listening to Interweaving, a podcast of conversation and context from Weave News. Since 2007, Weave News has been investigating underreported stories, highlighting alternative perspectives, and promoting grassroots media making and critical media literacy. If you're interested in joining us as a content contributor, just visit weavenews.org submissions. Now, back to more Interweaving. My name is Sammy Gall. Today is Monday, March 23rd, 2020, and I am reporting from Marimbula, New South Wales, Australia. As I've just traveled back from the U.S., and I've seen what's happened there and how those kind of things are starting to fall into place here in Australia. Although I'm on the other side of the world now, I feel a strange sense of deja vu. Things seemed relatively normal when I arrived, but since then, things have been starting to shut down and fear has been starting to set in. The business-as-usual mindset has definitely shifted in our community. Across Australia, I've been hearing reports from my friends who are being sent home from their various universities effective immediately, and some were only given 24 hours to pack up. Their university school holidays were moved up a week, and they're going to start online instruction. My little sister is enrolled in high school here and also started to change last week. The desks were all moved a couple meters apart, and teachers were putting a special emphasis on not being close to another. Parents who were unable to provide childcare were allowed to send their children to school today, but everyone else had to stay home. It feels to me like Australia is slightly behind in terms of this, 
and the steps that the government have been taking have been following what the U.S. has been doing just a little later because we've had less cases. So people from other cities are flocking into small towns like ours and taking food and necessary supplies and leaving towns like us with less stuff. There's also been racism, unfortunately, towards Chinese people. In the supermarket yesterday, just going to buy yogurt, and the person who was selling it was going off about Chinese people coming, starting all of this, all of the foreigners perpetrating this whole thing, which is absurd. But despite these kind of negative interactions, there's been a lot of positive things. Our biggest supermarket chain, Woolworths, started a shopping hour exclusively for the elderly and people who need it during this time. What gives me hope is the people here in Australia, loving their neighbors more, not taking things for granted. And while there's like a really big physical disconnect, but in a strange way, it feels like coronavirus is bringing Australians together. I'm Dylan Marsinkowski. I'm currently in Krabi, Thailand, but I've been working in Bangkok, Thailand for the past two months. The last couple trips that were scheduled have been cancelled, so I'm out of work for now. I'll be needing to head back to the States soon because I can't get stuck here if the country closes. Lots of people already wear masks in Bangkok because of the air quality, but uh, even down here in small towns like this, a lot more people are starting to wear masks. There's hand sanitizer everywhere in malls, in metro stations, in restaurants. There's a lot less uh, tourists actually in um, touristy places. But I was just in Tonsai and a lot of people are heading there now because it's a secluded area where you would think there would be less people. This pandemic has affected my work abroad, but it's all right. Gonna go home and sit in isolation. My name is Atherv. Today is Tuesday, 24th of March, 2020, and I'm reporting from Amsterdam, the Netherlands. As with most people, initially we did not take the threat that seriously. The first person infected in the country had been to the carnival in a town in the south of the Netherlands, and that is how it all started. We had thought that Amsterdam would be the epicenter in the country since it sees a lot of tourists, but that is not the case, thankfully. I'm a student at the University of Amsterdam and remember signing a petition to get the university administration to shut down all campuses. As much as the Dutch state machinery is efficient, it seemed to be taking quite too long to come up with proper measures. So when it was announced that universities, restaurants and bars would be shutting down, it was a sigh of relief to some, but a crisis to some others. While I am quite privileged to have my parents finance my education, which was also the only way I as a non-European could get my education in this country, since I'm not allowed to finance myself by working, some other friends who work part-time and live paycheck to paycheck could not afford to pay rent anymore. This became especially difficult for students from other European countries who could 
not only afford their subsistence anymore, but also could not just take a last-minute flight home, especially since flights were being canceled left and right. So uh, a friend of mine in a similar situation had to vacate her place in Amsterdam, take a train to the Dutch coast, take a boat across to the UK and go home. This was her last year of studying and she's going to finish her studies online while being in the UK. I didn't even get to say goodbye to her, but that is a minuscule inconvenience in these times. Another petition was going around to get the Dutch government to relax the rules regarding student rent allowances so that students could continue being at home uh, rather than being forced to move out and travel and put their lives in danger, essentially. Hopefully something will come out of it, so fingers crossed. Regardless, some Dutch students left Amsterdam and sought refuge in a small village elsewhere, hoping to come back to the same bustling city they remembered. Whilst the rest of us, Dutch, European and non-European students, are watching this tourist city come to a standstill. I live on the red light district, um, and no one around has ever seen this street this empty before. Nonetheless, most of us don't have the opportunity anymore to go home. My home country banned international flights almost two weeks ago, so we could only really laugh at our plight when the university told non-Dutch students to go back home to their home countries just two days ago. Ufa is always a bit too late, as always. However, this also has really highlighted the serious aspects of life for some of us sheltered students. There's a sudden uncertainty regarding the future. There are broken channels of income now. There's an inability to see your therapist. And you're being confined in spaces you may not feel safe in. There's also this inability to see family and friends. All of these things have pushed many of us to sympathize with other students for whom such things are reality, even when a seeming apocalypse is not taking place. And so in these times, we, we comfort our worried parents, we comfort our worried friends, we comfort our neighbors, while also keeping an eye on our studies, trying to still graduate in time, and hoping that the economic downturn resulting from the virus is not going to be too harsh on our dreams and aspirations. On behalf of the team here at Interweaving, a big thank you to Batisha, Nicole, Sammy, Dylan, and Atarv for contributing their voices to today's episode. We're going to continue to publish new episodes as often as possible as we use our citizen journalism network to help weave the world together during this global pandemic. If you like what you're hearing, take a moment to check us out at weavenews.org for more information about this series and how you can be a part of it. Take care. Interweaving is a production of Weave News, weaving the world together one underreported story at a time. Our engineer is Terry Dubray, and our theme music is provided by Bee Children. For more exciting grassroots media content, Find us online at weavenews.org or on social media at Weave News. There you can find out how you can support us or join us in our work. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another episode of Interweaving. Interweaving.